Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We are so happy you chose to join us. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit highlawnbaptistchurch.org for more information. But for now, grab your Bibles, go all the way to the back, and join us as we walk through Revelation. Well, good evening. And we are in session 24 of our look at the book of Revelation. A couple of things to remind you of really quickly before we delve in. First is that this is the only book of the Bible that has the chutzpah to say, read me, I'm special. Of all the 66 books in the Bible, this is the only one that promises a special blessing to those that read and those that hear the reading of this book. And we're going to claim that blessing tonight. But first, let's do something radical. Let's talk to God. We'll bow our hearts together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this book that while, Lord, while it does prescribe judgment for those that have disowned you, it also prescribes hope for those that have called upon your name. So help us to claim the blessing that is promised in these pages. Uh, give us ears to hear as well as a mind of understanding and a heart that is ready, ready, willing, and fully able to love you above all things, and to love our neighbors and to love each other as you have called us to do. So be with us now. Grant us your understanding, your inspiration, and most importantly, your love this day. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, the book of Revelation, as I've talked about, and I know we've got a couple of, of guests here and probably some new people that will eventually look in on, so just by way of review, it has a lot of sevens in it. In fact, I would challenge anybody to come up with an exhaustive number of seven occurrences that happen in this book, but there is a structure to it all. We've just talked about uh, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven thunders that were commanded by God to be left out of this book. And then seven bowls, or in some of your translations, seven vials of wrath. So this is what we have talked about so far. We have covered seven seals, or six seals, and then the seventh seal, once opened, actually calls into being or calls into order seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets, the seventh trumpet will actually call into order seven bowls of wrath. Now, what's unique about this book, actually what, what kind of is common, I should say, between this book and Daniel's 70 weeks, which this book is, is basically an exposition of what happens in Daniel's 70th week. There are, uh, seven, there are 69 weeks in Daniel's prophecy, then there is a pause between week 69 and week 70. We call that pause the church age. Well, the same thing happens here. Between seal number 6 and seal number 7, there is a pause where, the, where John tells us that for the span of about a half an hour, God breathes in the prayers of the saints. Now we are in a pause between trumpet number six and the effects of trumpet number seven. That's why both of those stars are still white. So in the middle of trumpet six and seven, trumpet seven sounds, but we don't start hearing about what impact it has because John is commissioned to prophesy. And in that commissioning, an angel gives him a Bibleridian. I'm not going to try to pronounce that. Bibleridian. There we go. As opposed to a, a, a Bibleridian. I'll just move with it. My Greek professor probably right now, if he's reading this, is howling in laughter. I know it. Pronunciation was never my strong suit. But uh, the little book. Now there are those that get this book confused, I believe, with the scroll of seven seals. That Greek word literally means a booklet. The Biblion, which is the scroll of seven seals, is a legal-sized document. It would have to be in order to accommodate seven seals. So we're talking about two separate documents here. This one, strangely enough, is commanded of John to eat. So in chapter 11, in the last session, we read about 
not only this, but about two passages of Scripture in which Old Testament prophets were commanded or were giving an account of where they had eaten the Word of God. And that that was what compelled them to begin prophesying, both of whom said that it was either sweet or it was a delight for them to take in. So what we're, what effectively that symbol is, if the Old Testament holds true, and of course I believe that it does, is that when John was commissioned to do this, he was given a revelation of God himself, something to share. And all three passages of Scripture point to these commonalities. Number one, word was given. The word of God was given to the prophet, but not just a whisper in his ear for him to pass back on. The word actually becomes part of the prophet. It gets absorbed, assimilated. Uh, in the book of the Psalms, we see the word salah that means pause and consider. Quite literally, it means to graze upon the word of God, to chew it like a cow chews the cud so that it is processed well and it becomes part of who we are, that it's not just something that we absorb intellectually, but it's something that we grow to live out as well. So the hearing of the Word of God, the, the eating of the Word, however you want to think of it, is sweet to the ears of the hearer or the mouth of the hearer. But in John's case specifically, the one out of the three, the assimilation part, digesting, it becomes what? It becomes bitter. This is as he's seeing what's going on, as it's being revealed to him. And if the other two accounts of the prophets are any indication, there's this promise of resentment by the recipient. And one of the things that we talked about last time is the fact that this is one of the most misconstrued, mistaught, or uh, maligned books of the Bible, even by the people that profess to teach it. Some churches leave it out altogether, which I believe is a horrible mistake, especially since this book goes out of its way to say, read me. For those who read or for those that hear it, they are both promised a special blessing, especially for those of us in the church, chapters 1 and 2, that not only talk about individual local churches and the promises they face and the, 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 uh, the antidote to those promises that Christ himself gives to them, but also, it, it is, and I know this is a controversial thought, but it is a, uh, a way where Jesus, I believe, gives a forecast of church history. But anyway, let's continue on. So this passage of Scripture that we're about to talk about, Revelation 12, John starts out by giving us an indication that what we're about to see is a great sign, or it is a truth rendered into signs. This is God making pageantry of a biblical truth. This is not a literal alien lady giving birth in the sky, at least by John's own wording. This is a wonder being set up, a vision being proclaimed, uh, as Jesus would proclaim. It's a parable. It's a heavenly story in an earthly setting or with, with earthly imagery. A parable of redemptive history. So if you would turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 12, the woman, the child, and the serpent. When you get there, say amen. So starting with verse 1 then. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars upon her head. She was pregnant and cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. What in the world does that mean? Now, there are many commentarians that focus, that apparently don't know their Old Testament as much, and I hate to put that on, on them, but that uh, claim that the woman represents the church, to which I have two phrases. Number one, if the woman is the church, then the bride of Christ is in trouble. Because all throughout Scripture, we hear that the bride of Christ is a chaste virgin. And this lady is what? Not. She is pregnant. She is about ready to give birth. So as, as uh, in most cases, one of the best commentaries for Holy Scripture that you can ever hope to find just happens to be Holy Scripture. So let's take a look really quickly. You don't have to turn in your copy, but I'll put it on the screen. Genesis 37, 
where Jacob himself will interpret this passage of Scripture for us. So in Genesis 37, verse 9, this is where Joseph is giving uh, an account of his dreams before not only his brothers, but his father and his mother, before Jacob and Rachel. And uh, Moses records for us here in verse 9, he had another dream and told it to his brothers. Look, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and and 11 stars were bowing down to me. He told his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him. What kind of dream is this that you have had, he said. And he's interpreting the dream here. Am I and your mother and your brothers really going to come and to bow down to the ground before you? The sun, the moon, and the stars. See, all of Revelation may be in in a mystery, but the mystery is solved for you somewhere else in the Bible. And it's our job as Christians, as disciples of Christ, to learn the Bible. You cannot be a whole Christian if you do not understand the whole counsel of the Word of God, particularly if you divorce yourself from part of it. Let's continue on. So the woman, if we refer back to Genesis 37, the sun refers to Jacob, the moon to his wife, Rachel, and the stars, the 12 sons or the 12 tribes of Israel. So the woman herself is Israel, the people of God. It's actually compared to a bride of God, unfaithful, I might add, but still, in Jeremiah chapter 3. And, it's just, and she, the, the, the people of Israel are actually described as a woman in travail or a woman in labor, several other passages of Scripture. But moving on, then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great fiery red dragon. This is the same word for red that we find in, in the red horse from the four horsemen that we covered earlier. The great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on its heads were seven crowns. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she did give birth, it might devour her child. Now, there are several important biblical truths that we have to process through here. First of all, again, pyros. I actually got that correction, that correct. Having the color of fire red, and it is the color that was used for the red horse. That particular type of red, not scarlet red, but fire red. That being an emblem of conflict and of the coming, of, of coming tragedy. Dracon refers to a dragon or a great serpent. Now, in English, The word worm, W-Y-R-M, is often used for dragon too. And it describes a serpent or a snake-like creature with wings. And that's what we're talking about here. Uh, But in this case, one that has multiple heads. I hate to say it, but uh, our own high school... uh, Yeah, we might want to take a look at that. They don't fare well in Scripture. Moving on. But the red dragon had seven heads, and upon them were seven crowns. Now, these crowns are Stephanos, not... um, uh, They're Stephanos, meaning that they are not the victor's crowns, like we'd read about earlier, but they are, are... These are... Wait a second, I'm getting them mixed up. My apologies, I'll have to go back and redo the slide. Those, I believe, are diadems, uh, ruler's crowns. I was thinking about two different things. There are two types of crowns mentioned in Scripture. A diadem and a Stephanos. A Stephanos is a victor's crown. It's a, it refers to a laurel wreath that is around the head of someone who, uh, in fact, like you receive a gold medal in the Olympics. A diadem means a ruler's crown. It's a crown of authority. Ten horns, symbolic of power and strength. The number ten is significant. Number six, of course, is symbolic of a fallen nature, incompleteness, unholiness, in other words, not whole. Four is often referred to as something that is symbolic of nature, of worldliness. So effectively, what this image is setting up prophetically is a ruler of a fallen world. You put those together. And of course, there's a reference to all of this in Daniel's chapter 7 and 8, but moving on. The dragon swept a third of the stars 
stars often being idioms of angels from the sky, from heaven, and hurled them down to the earth. Meaning that on his way down, he's taking a third of the angelic host with him to act as his agents. And he has a twofold mission to stop both the coming and the acceptance of the Messiah. The dragon was seated in front of the woman to devour the child. Verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male who is going to rule all the nations with an iron rod. Her child was called up to God and to his throne. Now you could probably already guess or have in mind who the child is. Jesus Christ. But let's continue on just for the sake of explanation. Jesus Christ is referred to as the seed of a woman. Uh, we also receive in Isaiah, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Plural. Meaning that he is somebody that is, is coming to and is derived from the people of Israel. He is said to rule with an iron rod, which means he'll have both the ability and the strength to break his enemies, the enemies of the people of God, in the case of Psalm chapter 2. And he is also to be proclaimed King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is also being caught up. Now, here's a sticky point with some interpretations back and forth, and I'll show you why in just a second. The word for caught up here is arpazo, which you've been with me for a while in this study. The word arpazo is the Greek word meaning to rapture, to snatch, to claim. And it has the, uh, the, the kind of, not just to gently ascend, but to grab out of. And that's where an issue of interpretation comes into play. Ascension or rapture. G.H. Pember, back in 1876, wrote in his book, Earth's Earliest Ages, that his interpretation of this, the more that he thought about it, the more that it didn't make sense that the child was Christ and Christ alone. I'm not going to advocate for this interpretation, but I want you to, to think about it for a second. Israel and the church are not, Israel is not a person. Well, okay, it, it was a person. But when we're talking about Israel in the collective sense, we're talking about the people of God before the rise of the church, right? So in his mind, Israel and the church are both not singular people, but groups of people. So he, in his interpretation, he's thinking of this as not being the individual Christ, but as the body of Christ. And again, that's in relation to the word that we know as rapture. And we also see that unlike, <laughs> I hate to say this, but I'm going to say this. It takes a few people by surprise that Jesus was Jewish. And that the first 3,000 Christians who were the inauguration of the church were likewise Jewish on the birthday of the church, which was Pentecost. So this is where his, uh, Dr. Pember's mind is going to when he sees the word caught up, snatch, harpazo, rapture, here in this passage of Scripture, that he's not just talking about the ascension of Christ, but the meeting of the body of Christ with Christ in the air. Again, I'm not going to advocate for that particular interpretation, but I want you to have it to chew on to come up on your own, uh, to decide for yourselves. But anyway, uh, continuing with verse 6. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared for her by God to be nourished there for 1,260 days. So she is refuged by God after the ascension or the rapture, however you want to think of it. She, fleds, she flies to the wilderness where she is sheltered and nourished. It's interesting to note that in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that the wilderness is the place where Israel received, the nation of Israel, received manna and water from who? From God. It was also a place where Israel was purified. Now, for those of you that went through my Torah study, you remember that it took only about 40 days, give or take, for God to bring Israel out of Egypt. 
but it took a little over 40 years to bring Egypt out of Israel. So it was a place where not only was Israel sheltered and nourished, but where Israel was eventually purified to become the people of God. And that only lasted for a generation. But anyway, moving on. Uh, 1,260 days. We're going to come across a lot of different ways of saying the exact same thing throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. 1,260 days refers to, again, 42 months, again, three and a half years, again, time, times, and half a time. All of that to say the tribulation period. The 70th week of Daniel, which is what this whole thing starts off with, is a period of three and a half years. The first is a relatively peaceful period where a covenantal relationship is established between the people of Israel and a coming world ruler who not only reinstates temple worship but gives them the okay to conduct their religious activities, including sacrifice as they will at a new coming third temple. However, the last three and a half years, right at that midpoint, Apparently, the coming world leader goes all uh, kinds of megalomaniacal and sets up an idol of himself in the Holy of Holies, the abomination of desolation, which triggers the tribulation event. This is something that, again, was forecast by Daniel and referenced by Christ. So when we're talking about either 1,260 days or 42 months or three and a half years or times, times, and half a time, whichever way that the Bible has spelled it out, we're talking about the same period of time. In this case, where a remnant of Israel during the tribulation period will be moved to the wilderness, kind of reminds you of when Jesus says, when you see the abomination, run to the hills. Now the question is, is this, uh, is this vision at this point John's way of seeing the 144,000 sealed of God being protected by God? I'll leave that to you to interpret. Let's move on. Verse 7. War broke out in heaven. Michael, incidentally the name means who is likened to God and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail and there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out. The ancient serpent. Some of your books, and, and this is a mistranslation that I will call out in the King James English. Some In that particular translation, and I think in a couple of others with one degree of separation from it, refer to this passage as that old serpent. The literal translation is the serpent of old, or the serpent from the dragon from the ancient times. Are you with me so far? Which is who? Satan. So here John, through this, this part of Revelation, is prophetically telling us that the snake in the garden is him. This was not an enchanted creature, a talking snake, although he might have been in that form, so to speak. This dragon and the tempter from way back are the same being, called the devil, the Satan. That's in 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 Greek, um, the excuse me, in Greek the slanderer, in uh, Hebrew Hansetan, the accuser of the brethren who was called the devil of Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to earth and his angels with him. So there was a battle taking place in heaven. We're talking here about Michael. Excuse me, I didn't make that clear. Michael is the chief of the angelic host. He is known to be a veteran of the wars of the Lord. A book that apparently existed during the time of the writing of the book of Numbers in Zechariah. However, it's not a book of biblical canon. It is a book that both works reference. I would love to get my hands on it sometime because I'd love to read it, even though it's, it's not Scripture because it is referenced by Scripture. He is called a prince by Daniel and also a warrior for Israel or for the cause of the people of God. 
He is declared an archangel in, by both Jude and by Paul. And in this strange episode, in Jude, of course there's only one chapter, so Jude verse 9, he defends the body of Moses against Satan. We talked about that in the previous section when we were talking about the possibilities of the two witnesses. But I would really love to understand what all that was about too, talking about questions. But there are things that I believe that we were kept from for the sake of both misinterpretation and misapplication, something that the knowledge itself under the faultiness of human reasoning might cause us problems. Anyway, let's move on. Satan, on the other hand, the accusing adversary, again, literally the serpent of old. He's called a murderer from the beginning. Talking about uh, Adam and Eve, he might not have plunged a knife into them, but he's the reason they're dead. He's referred to the same thing in John's gospel by the voice of Christ himself. He is known to be the enemy of Christ. When God himself says, I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed, meaning Christ being the seed of the woman and apparently a ruler coming up from the enemy himself. I don't know that this is biological. My own interpretation is that it's not, but we'll talk more about that later. The battle for heaven, uh, the accusing adversary, he was the rep, declared a rebel leader by Isaiah. And he actually has his judgment, his pronouncement of judgment written in a prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 28. And I'll read a little bit of, of that passage for you here. Now, the prophecy itself is directed to the king of Tyre at this time. However, once you start looking at it, you'll realize that this isn't a, a, it is a direct prophecy, but it has a prophetic echo, meaning that God is using a pre-existing truth to declare judgment on an immediate person. The word of God came unto me, son of man, lament for the king of Tyre and say unto him, this is what the Lord says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect beauty. You were in Eden, the, Arden, the garden of God. That should immediately tell you that this isn't directly pointed to the king. It's a shadow. It's an echo. It's a pattern. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every kind of precious stone covered you. Carnelian, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, lapis lazuli. Uh, I probably butchered that going on. Turquoise and emerald. Your mountings and settings were crafted in gold. They were prepared on the day you were created. You were appointed a guardian cherub. We know that a king is not a cherub. For I had appointed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones. From the day you were created, you were blameless in all your ways until wickedness was found within you. Through the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I expelled you in disgrace from the mountain of God and banished you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud because of your beauty. For the sake of your splendor, you corrupted your wisdom. So I threw you down to the ground. I made you a spectacle before kings. You profaned your sanctuary by the magnitude of your iniquities and your dishonest trade. So I made... Fire come from within you, and it consumed you. I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of everyone watching you. All those who know you among the peoples were appalled at you. You have become an object of horror and will never exist again. How many of you knew that was in there? Now, a couple of things really quickly. Um, the devil is not a red guy with horns and a pitchfork and a tail. Let's get that out of the way right now because I hate to say it, but in seminary a lot of people claim that they don't believe in the devil because they don't believe in that image and it being a real thing. Well, it's not. That particular image of, of the devil was a caricature created in the early Middle Ages because we know the angel to be a being of beauty. If you have a fiery red individual with a, uh, a pitchfork standing next to him and a long tail, he's not going to be able to tempt you into much. 
But we, he, we see here that he is an angel of light. That his interior might be horribly disfigured, but his exterior is something that is still alluring. So that image, let's get that out of the way, was a Middle Ages caricature. Something that was symbolic in its nature and intended to be a, something to, to be made fun of. And for some odd reason, I think that we suffer from a lot of, of Looney Tunes theology in that regard. Because we see this um, pop cultural references that have no basis in biblical fact. But anyway, he's also referred to as the father of lies, the deceiver of the world. And here we see a passage that's an echo of Revelation chapter 12, where he was expelled finally from heaven. Now in the book of Job, we see him... Effectively, taking a part as a, a prosecuting, uh, excuse me, a prosecuting attorney in the very throne room of God. But at this point in time, in the book of Revelation, he will be finally expelled, never to have access to that throne room ever again. Um, any questions up to this point? My interpretation of that kind of piggybacking on what we're about to learn in, in Revelation, getting towards the end of the book, is that once he is finally dealt with, there will be no other accuser in his likeness that will ever come up again. That once redemptive history has been fulfilled, then his time is no more. He'll be in hell. He'll be sequestered away for all of eternity. And from the, from, the, from the conclusion of Armageddon, when he is finally expelled, I think that if, if memory is served, excuse me, still have a bit of Swiss cheese in the brain and trying to get all this stuff together. But uh, millennial reign, battle of Armageddon, no? At the conclusion of the millennial reign, the enemy will be loosed for a time. And he will attempt to invade and attack Christ again. And after that, he is defeated that final time, he will be permanently exiled into hell. So from that point forward, nature will be fully restored to the glory that was always intended to possess. Our fellowship with God will be made perfect. And nothing and no one like him will ever pester humanity nor its God ever again. That's, that's how I personally choose to interpret that scripture. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. It, it, it would be, the, the comment was made, I just wish that it were true back then. And yes, if his, if his time had already been done, that's one of the reasons that I, I'm confused by premillennialists. Um, because in their mind's eye, we're in the millennial kingdom. Well, if we're in the millennial, yeah. If we're in the millennial kingdom, then Satan's leash is a little too long. And World War I, World War II at least should be well evidence of the fact that we are not, not in the millennial kingdom. Anyway, the enemy has two base uh, types of strategies, and I'm going to share a little bit of that with you, both personally and universally. Uh, I guess you would say that uh, strategy versus tactics. This would be more tactical because it's one person at a time. First, cause doubt in the Word of God. This was his strategy from the beginning, a very old playbook, because what did he do for the very first thing as he slithered up to Eve? Did God really say that? Did he really say this? Cause doubt in the Word of God. The next thing, install self-focused thinking, pride. God knows that in the day that you taste of the fruit, you will be like gods yourself knowing the difference between good and evil. Install pride. Focus on the self. Despise God's word. Put yourself in God's place. Hide the presence and the power of God. This is something that's rampant in the world today. If you don't have a God, then you're not accountable to anybody. If you don't have a God who is your ultimate judge, and your creator, that's something else that I hear uh, that, that really disturbs me is the fact that a lot of people colloquially now 
are claiming when they have children that they made their children. You created us and not we ourselves. Okay, that's, that's from the Psalms. And the first few times I came across that passage, I was thinking, well, duh, why would you even bother to put that down there? That should be well understood. But nowadays, you, you hear it coming along. We're taking the place of our own creator. We are gods in our own eyes. Meaning the only person really that we're accountable to in this current culture in which we live is ourselves. And we're not doing a very good job of holding ourselves accountable at that. But that's another sermon. Um, so hide the presence and the power of God because if he's not there, let them do whatever they want. And as they're doing whatever they want, prove to God that his creation's flawed. Rob God of his glory by pointing down at his fallen creatures. Hide the existence and the impact of the supernatural as a whole. Uh, I can't remember who it was. I think it was uh, the NPR host of Mr. Harvey, Paul Harvey, who, who, who said, among other things, that the greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was uh, making you believe he didn't exist. The greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was making people think that he doesn't exist. Because if the leader doesn't exist, then you're aimless. If the enemy doesn't exist, then there's no reason to arm up and be prepared. There's no reason to study your sword and your shield and to have it handy at your command, hiding the word in your heart. Because if you're not accountable, then what's the point? You're not going to sin in your own eyes, and you're not going to have to defend yourself against the enemy that's not there. Does that sound like any era that you know of? Hide the presence of the power of God. Hide the existence and the impact of the supernatural. Because if you have no soul, if this is all that there is and there's nothing more, why bother? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Sin through pointlessness, hopelessness, meaninglessness. Entice people into spiritual slavery which is ultimately what we become from the instant that we deny the existence of Christ, from the instant that doubt becomes disbelief, and by disbelief I mean the willful arrogance that says that God doesn't exist no matter what evidence comes my way, then we are a slave in sin. From the moment that we can discern the difference between right and wrong as human beings, we always default to the latter every time. And in that instant, we are His unless we are rescued unless we are redeemed. Reduce the believer's utility to the kingdom. Apathy is probably the worst thing that can befall a Christian. One of the greatest contributors to the Holocaust in Nazi Germany were the silent Lutheran pulpits in that country. All that evil really needs to succeed is for good people to do nothing. Install apathy, self-importance, self-focus in the believer. Or, on the other hand, install outright pride. This is where we get the crusades. This is where we get the papacy being not only a, a, a sacred institution, but a secular institution as well. This is where we have people who claim to be Baptist deacons, no offense to the ones gathered here, who wear that like a badge upon their sleeves and then they turn around and they make a mockery of the institution of the church and the faith. Pastors in the same light. Reduce the believer's utility to the kingdom. His universal strategy with every time God has a revelation of redemptive history, of his redemptive plan, the enemy sharpens his focus. His plan from the beginning and his ultimate goal is to destroy the creation of God. To rob God of his glory, to set himself up as God, and to prove that we're not worth it as the children of the Most High God. You made them in your image. I'm going to prove you that that image is flawed. 
Moral and genetic corruption, that's what we see in Genesis chapter 4. That's where the flood of Noah comes in. Then when the Abrahamic line is established, when God makes a remnant of people after all the way from, from the landing of the ark until Babel, one family remembers the Lord God. So he turns his sights on Abraham. If he could destroy Abraham's line, then Jesus isn't going to emerge. The covenant, from the instant that the covenant was established with Abraham, the target was locked. Turn Abraham himself away from the son of promise. He was promised that he would have a son through his wife Sarah, and that that son would inherit the promise. But what does he and Sarah do instead? They have a surrogate. And Ishmael is born outside of that covenant, outside of that agreement. Then later on we hear that they abandon the land of promise. Time for the enemy to put landmines in place that later on Moses and excuse me, Moses and Joshua and every other king afterward will have to put up with. In fact, if you really want a, a negative a nugget of trivia, Palestine was never named Palestine until the rise of the Roman Empire. And they called it Palestine as a jab to the Jews that they had just forced out of there. Palestine comes from Philistine. Palestine, to refer to Israel as Palestine, is to acknowledge the fact that Rome, just as Rome did back in the day, had considered the Israelites usurpers of the land of the Philistines. How many of you knew that one? The actual regional name for the area is the Levant. Palestine refers to the Philistines. Israel, of course, refers to the Israelites. And, of course, Canaan being the land from which Canaan's descendants once dwelled. But let's, let's move on. Uh, usurping the promised land before the Exodus. Of, then we get to Pharaoh's next murder of children. Then a promise is made to the house of David. So let's try to kill David. And kill his line, rather. Uh, Jeroham kills all of his brothers. Uh, Adaliah destroys all surviving descendants of David, except for Joash, who gets rescued. Jeconiah in, in, ends up having a blood curse on him and all of his descendants that they would never rule. And of course, there was the attempted genocide of all of Israel by Haman in the book of Esther. So with each passing generation, the focus gets tighter in until we finally get to Jesus himself from the very beginning. Slander Mary. Why? Because she was a young woman outside of wedlock that was showing that she was pregnant. We don't often talk about this come Christmas time, but in Israel, if a woman was found to be pregnant outside of wedlock, what was to happen to her? She was to be stoned to death which would take out Jesus before he ever was born. The dragon was set in front of the woman waiting for her to give birth so that he could devour her child. Herod's mass murder of the children, Herod's own genocide, if you will. The assassination attempt at Nazareth where he proclaimed himself uh, to be on the Messiah's mission and they tried to throw him off a cliff. The storms on Galilee, which we later find out, the storm was issued because he was coming to cast out a demon. Or two, or many, or a whole legion. Let's go on, verse 10. I heard a loud voice from heaven say, The, salva the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come. Because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night. Notice that was what he was doing all this time before he was finally banished from the throne room. Right now, he is in the throne room trying to accuse us before God, trying to discredit and devalue us before our Redeemer, while Christ, on the other hand, is acting as our great high priest, praying for you. The authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been thrown down. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So he's including the saints in with this victory. For they did not love their lives to the point of death. 
Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has come down to you with great fury, because he knows his time is short. One of the ideas that I tend to agree with is that once the rapture happens, once there is, I, I don't believe that it's a secret rapture. I know that a lot of people are, are convinced of that. I, I think that it's secret in the fact that no one knows when it's going to happen. But once it happens, it's going to be quite obvious that a bunch of people have all of a sudden disappeared. And I think that that's the instance that the enemy knows that things have to happen in rapid succession because his time, his days are literally numbered. Right now, the Bible tells us that the church will remain in function until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. And as I have mentioned several times, if there's anybody out there within the sound of my voice who is under conviction, please go forward now, not only because it's ever, because you need to get that question settled of your eternal destiny before it's ever, everlastingly too late, but because also you could be the one that's holding the rest of us up. There is a number in heaven that is foreordained, a fullness of the church. And, and I'm convinced that it takes the enemy by surprise every time another person comes to Christ. That with every number he wonders, is that the one, is that the one, is that the one, is that the one, is that the one? So he does everything that he can to distract, to dismay, and to disbelieve. He's been in shock therapy for about 2,000 plus years now. I think that's great. Every time someone comes forward, another heart attack from the enemy. But one of these days, that number will hit. The dwelling will be complete. And the Father will say to the Son, Go, bring your bride home. Rejoice you heavens and you dwell in them. So Satan has been permanently expelled, defeated by Jesus' sacrifice and the testimony of the saints by love and by grace. The brothers and sisters who loved God more than self, who gave their lives, the martyrs, the dedicated, the ones who even to this day place themselves in jeopardy for their own lives because they know that their souls and the souls of those around them are far more important. Satan's fury, however, is now directed upon the earth because he knows his time is done and he has to focus everything that he has on God's creation to make his wrath as abundant as, perfect as possible. So, he turns his sights now back to the woman. When the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he persecuted or chased after the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two great wings, the wings of a great eagle, so that she could fly from the serpent's presence to her place in the wilderness where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time. One plus two plus a half. Three and a half years. There's that phrase again. I wish he would just say three and a half years. <clears throat> From his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a, flow, like a river flowing after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river that the dragon had spewed from its mouth. So the dragon was furious with the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring to those who kept the commands of God and home firmly, who hold firmly excuse me, to the testimony about Jesus, the dragon stood on the sand of the sea. So there is setting up this image that the dragon still considers himself the king of the fallen territory, the king of the fallen world. Now, why is he still after the woman? He's been thrown out of heaven. What's left? I believe for that we have to take a look back at the prophet Hosea, where he gives us this very cryptic verse. Hailing from the voice of God, he writes for us, I will return to my, and I've already talked about this a couple of times during this study, I will return again into my place till they acknowledge their offense, then they will seek my face 
my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Now, this is God. And in order for God to go back to his place, he had to come from his place. God the Father is omnipresent. However, God the Son has locality. He came from his place. He returned to his place, being rejected. When they acknowledge their offense, look at that verse. Then they will seek my face in their affliction. They will earnestly seek me. It it is my conjecture, and I understand that it's conjecture, but I'll put it for you to consider. If you don't agree, I'm not going to claim that you're a heretic, but just so that you understand my reasoning here, I believe that part of the reason behind the tribulation is to bring a remnant out of Israel again that will accept their Messiah. That out of the pressures of the tribulation, they will again, they will, they will again look to Him who they have pierced. And they will fulfill that prophecy as well. They will see Jesus and they will acknowledge Him. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that. Jesus Christ is Lord. In their affliction, they will seek Me earnestly. So, even after he's been cast out of heaven, he tries to condemn Israel because it's when they acknowledge their offense that Christ hears their call and returns. So he persecutes or he pursues after Israel, who is rescued on eagles' wings. They will mount upon the air as wings of eagles. They will walk and not grow weary. They will run and not grow weary. That image is all throughout Scripture. Uh, It was used in the flight from Egypt. It was used in the flight from the wilderness or in their, their return from the wilderness. It was used in their return from Babylon, all to say that the power of God rescued them. It's interesting also to note that eagles can soar higher than any other form of avian life, not because of their own power to flap their wings, so to speak, but of their wings' capacity to catch the wind and ride on it. They allow the wind to carry them. They are super accurate at determining updrafts, finding updrafts, and then letting that, the wind, carry them up. Likewise, it's interesting to note that on that, both the Hebrew word for spirit and the Greek word for spirit, pneuma, is the, is the same as their word for wind. Pneumatic, air power, pneumatology, the study of the spirit. I think that's neat. And again, the wilderness again, is the place of purification and provision from Israel from all the way back to the Torah. So the enemy sends a flood, and in Daniel chapter 11, we, we hear that that's also a, a biblical imagery for an army, for an attacking army. But the earth, similar to what happened in the book of Numbers and later on in the book of Micah, the earth opens up and swallows the enemies of the people of God. And in frustration, again, the air, the dragon attacks the children who are the faithful. I'm going to conclude with taking a look at Psalm number 12. It's one of the shorter ones. But I want you to see the eerie similarities that David, who Jesus himself calls out as a prophet, writes into this passage of Scripture compared to the Scripture that we just read. Psalm 124, excuse me. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when men arose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive with their wrath was kindled against us. Then the waters would have, the waters would have overwhelmed us. The stream would have gone over our soul. Then the swollen waters would have gone over our soul. The reason that there are strange uh, capitalized letters back in there is again, this is Hebrew poetry. So it should actually be line by line instead of in paragraph form there. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help 
is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Isn't that neat? So this, more or less, is an image of redemptive history. God had to provide the rescue for humanity because we were not capable of doing it ourselves. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. It all had to be accomplished by Him. Satan has attacked at every stage, always sharpening his gaze upon whatever the focus of redemptive history was at the time. Israel became a remnant who knew God out of the episode with with Babel and after the episode with the ark and so on. Satan repeatedly tries to destroy Israel and by extension later on Christ and the church. And Christ and his church were both born out of Israel. The church will be called to heaven with Christ one great and glorious day. But at that point in time, the enemy will accelerate his rebellion. Israel herself will be attacked. But this we are promised, that the faithful will overcome. Why? Not because of their own works, but because God has saved them. So for session 25, I know it might seem a little long, but there are three passages of Scripture I want you to read over because we're getting ready to talk about the Antichrist. Take a look at Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, which we just partially went over, and of course the passage for next time, Revelation 13. I want you to think about what you have been taught previously about the Antichrist, both in these settings in church and also what you've learned through pop culture through the various movies and other depictions and literature that you have seen. What do you notice about the difference between what you've been taught or what you have read or what you've watched on TV or in the movies and what is actually in Scripture? As always, journal those differences down as well as your thoughts and please discuss them in your groups. Keep your groups alive. Keep them moving. Keep them talking. Just as iron sharpens iron, those fellowships are important for you to develop as strong Christians. And all God's people said, I know that we're a bit over time, um, but before we dismiss, I do want to ask if there are any other questions or comments, anything uh, from the community online or from you. Okay. All right. Yes. In the case of this image, the question is if the, the rapture has already occurred, who is the faithful that we're talking about here? Um, it's, it's hard to say, but the, the image that we have presented says that those that are faithful will still be pursued on the earth. Satan is no longer in heaven. He's been cast down, and we've just read that now that he's down... Uh, he's still going to pursue after the woman, meaning that there is something of Israel that's still here. And he's going to be attacking those that are still faithful. That's what we just read. What are there those after the tribulation period that are going to be saved through Christ? Um, I believe that there will. We've just actually read about tribulation saints and about the sealing of the 144,000. I think that's where that fits in. But again, the way that this image is set up, it's confusing. So if, if that's conjecturable and you don't agree with it, I don't blame you in the least. Because again, this stuff is confusing. That's just the way that, that I'm interpreting it for now. So if you, if, if you come up with something different that's logical, I'm not going to take your birthday away. But uh, that's just, as, I, as I'm reading it, that's kind of what I've noticed with it. Okay. Anything else before we dismiss? All right, then let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time, for your word. And, and we do pray that rather than, um, than this being a point of division, Lord, that you would give us a spirit of unity and help us to dwell in the bonds of peace together. 
as we, with everything that we are, seek to better understand your word, that we might take hope from it, that we might draw encouragement from it and strength, but that more than that, that, that we would have a heart for your people, that rather see our families, our neighbors, be subject to the terror and the fury of the dragon as he descends to earth, rather than see them suffer through the tribulation. Lord, in whatever generation that comes to pass, that you would help us through our testimony and through your blood, you would help us to be that light that shines in the darkness that you would reflect your goodness through us so that if any have yet to come to know you in a free pardon of sin, that you would inspire us to those, those divine appointments where that we would not hesitate to give an account of the joy and the hope that is with us. You would help us to meet with the words needed and the spirit needed to wake someone to their spiritual situation before it is everlastingly too late. Use us as ambassadors of your reconciliation to help add others to your kingdom here. Go with us now, empower us to this task as we dedicate this time and ourselves into your hands without any reservation. For it's in the matchless name of Christ we pray. And all God's people say, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.